This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us. On today's show, it turned into a bit of a divorce special with family lawyer Madeleine Mendy. Where to get divorced? Who pays who and how much? And that big custody question. Did you know that girls are more prone to hair lice than boys? We were talking about lice, nits and more with the ultimate solution at No More Lice Salon. Medical tourism was the topic of the day, speaking to two doctors who performed a life-saving surgery. And September is Blood Cancer Awareness Month in conversation with an expert and two patients. What do you need to know? Joining us live in studio is Madeleine Mendy, partner, head of family law department of Bin Seven Associates and legal consultants. And today we can help you with custody, guardianship, visitation, child protection issues, family law in general. And already lots of messages coming in for you, Madeleine. 4001 on the ARN Play app and the WhatsApp too. And as I said earlier, if you'd rather be anonymous, we completely understand. Is it a busy season now, September time? It has started, yes. Mm-hmm. We had a dip in the last... Two weeks of August. That was it. Uh, But that was it. (laughs) And in in terms of any trends that you're noticing, um, is it a case of some people maybe coming back from family holidays and realising, I don't want to have another family holiday with this individual? (laughs) I mean, you have people that have wanted to get divorced and have decided to put it off until after the summer. So what, have like one Uh, last family situation? One last family vacation or or just didn't want to spoil their holiday, I suppose. Mm. I see this week I've landed this morning for my holiday. Uh, and I have 10 appointments this week. So Busy time to be a divorce lawyer in Dubai. Mm-hmm. Um, now, can we do a bit of role play? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> this, is how, this is how the Dubai rumour mill gets started. <laughs> um, I, mean, I say this um, because I've had a number of messages asking about, well, here for example, my husband has abandoned me, left for another woman, yes. we don't have any children. If I file for family support, maintenance or alimony, how much am I entitled to? I've also had questions exactly along these lines about, you know, reviewing. So yes. before we get into the text line, maybe we can answer a few questions around divorcing in Dubai just by, by going back and forth. So I'm going to make an appointment with with you and I've, I've I've turned up to your office and I this is all complete fiction by the way I have decided with my husband that we are going to get divorced we want a straightforward no blame divorce we've got two kids in the mix we both work how do you then decide about who gets the kids when and for how long and payments made between spouses so the first thing, I mean, in terms of who gets the kids, we don't decide. And that's the thing. I think often people come to lawyers and they let lawyers decide. We shouldn't. Uh, you should look at who is the primary carer for your children and who looks after them the most. Of course, here in Dubai, we have nannies. But taking away the nanny, who does the day-to-day, who does most of the day-to-day care, especially if, in your example, if you're both working. And then work around that. You may decide now that the law says in principle children can be with both parents half of the time. You can decide that it will be half of the week with one, half of the week with uh, another. I have parents who do one week in, one week out. Um, it just depends what's best for your child and their age. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
some kids don't cope with doing one week in, one week out when they're very young. And then, Manuel, is that fixed? You know, you agree this, you have it signed. Are you, is this kind of written in stone then until the children reach 18 or can it be reviewed? No, it can be reviewed. So the two things that can be reviewed in a divorce settlement agreement are the amount of maintenance, of child maintenance you receive and uh, the amount of time each parent spends with a child. Okay. That's flexible. Let's talk cash money. Who's getting what and why? How is that calculated? Right. We have to look at it in two ways. You've got Abu Dhabi court and Dubai court. Both of them have brought in uh, non-Muslim laws, but they're dealing with it differently. So if you divorce in Abu Dhabi, you will get, and it's fixed at the moment, at the moment, I, I, and I'm stressing at the moment, you, the, only the wife gets an amount. The husband doesn't get anything from the wife. Even if the wife is the main breadwinner, wow. he wouldn't. Okay. It only goes one way. So the wife will have in Abu Dhabi 25% of her husband's salary times the year of marriage. So let's say you've been married for 10 years. Your husband earns 100000 because it's easy nice. for me. Right? <laughs> then you'll get 25000 times 10 years, so 250000 as a lump sum. As your spousal maintenance. As okay. a lump sum, so it's not a monthly payment. No, it's a lump sum. Okay. Uh, then what you... Hang on, all, sorry, I need uh, to know. What if he hasn't got that money? No, what, but he, it's from his salary. He's going to have to make it. Okay. <laughs> and, he, he, well, it's a percentage of his salary, okay. right? So it's not a number that's plucked out of the air. They're just taking out 25% of his salary and saying, right, this is how much you have to pay. That is, if you don't have an agreement. If you have an agreement... You can say, I don't want anything, and that's it. Okay, so that's Abu Dhabi. Yes. Now, my husband and I live in Dubai, so, so we're, 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 we're going to get divorced here. Dubai, the law <laughs> is new, so it's February, uh, since the 1st of February. They haven't set an exact amount. It's on a case-by-case basis, but it's much lower than Abu Dhabi. What about who pays for what in terms of, is it a husband's responsibility to cover the accommodation, to cover the school fees, for example? Yes. What, what's some of the criteria there? So... Although the law is changing, they now say that we take into account the wife's uh, income. It's mainly the husband who pays, but it's also capped to a certain percentage of his salary. But he will pay for rent, food and clothing, education, transport um, and capped to a certain amount. Okay, we've had a number of anonymous messages on this topic. One saying, when there is a divorce and kids involved, how does maintenance financials work? How much does the husband have to pay? So this is what we're talking about now. Um, So it would it would be. So it's between 20 to 35% of his salary plus school fees. Plus school fees. Okay. And a follow-up question saying, do, do the finances change if the divorce is initiated by the wife? The, no, that's, that's only if they're Muslim. If you're non-Muslim, it doesn't change because we now have no full divorces for non-Muslim. Mm-hmm. But for Muslim, yes, the, the wife loses the moral compensation maintenance. Okay, hope that helps. Um, A message here from N that we're going to come to next saying, can I ask what happens if a a divorced couple disagrees on the choice of school? My ex-wife wants to move our kids to a school that's literally twice the price of the current place and of course the bill is coming my way. Let's uh, offer some insights on that next. 4001, if you've got a question from Madeleine Mandy talking family law on Dubai I3 until 5 o'clock. Madeleine Mendy with us today, Head of Family Law Department at Bin 7 Associates and Legal Consultant. Today we can help with all sorts of family law issues. As I said, already discussing lots of divorce, custody, guardianship, child protection issues as well. So if you've got something on your mind, need a bit of clarification, you've got a specific situation, or you want an expert, second take, this is your chance. Now, 
We have got a lot of questions to get through. Are you are you feeling ready? Surprise. Yes. Let's do it. Okay. Um, message, we've just been talking about maintenance there. Saying, during payment of maintenance, if a husband loses his job and goes back to his home country, how does it work? How does the end of service play out in that situation? Right. So from his perspective, before he leaves, he should go to the court and say, right, I'm leaving. I'm not going to have an income here. You need to terminate that maintenance. And to be able to do that, he needs to ask for the children to be repatriated with him. Uh, to, let's say it's England, uh, the court, if the wife wants to, st- or the ex-wife wants to stay here, the court will likely say to the ex-wife, right, either the kids go with him, or if you are keeping them here, you need to be able to look after them financially, and they'll terminate that order normally uh, of maintenance. But he needs to make the application. If he doesn't and he leaves, then uh, um, the debt will accumulate against him. So when he comes back, he clocks in at the airport. Got you. Okay. He goes straight, straight so in. Got to keep it above board. Yes. Okay. Um, right. And got in touch saying, can I ask what happens if a divorced couple disagrees on choice of school? My ex-wife wants to move our kids to a school that's literally twice the price of their current place. And of course, the bill is coming my way. Does this come up a lot, Madeline? I do have that, especially when people are breaking up and they're going to opposite end of the city or um, just didn't agree in the first place in terms of education. Uh, what needs to be done is you make an urgent application. First, the child can't be removed from the school without uh, both parents, but especially the guardian's approval, which is the husband whilst you whilst you are still married. Uh, if they are divorced, then you make an emergency application to the school to say, I want to keep the child here. I'm the one that's paying for the school fees. I can't afford the next school fees. And the curriculum, uh, there's nothing wrong with the curriculum of the school that he's in now. And the court is like, they act in the best interest of the child. So there's no reason why they'll allow the move to take place. But an emergency application has to be made. Um, and a message here saying, hi, both. My husband abandoned me, left me for another woman. We don't have any children. If I file for family support or maintenance or alimony, how much am I entitled to? Do you get that as an ex-wife? You, you do. In Dubai, you get alimony anyway, whether you have children or not. But the amount is limited. Very limited. Uh, in Abu Dhabi, like what are we talking about? Like a thousand dirhams kind of thing? Depends. It depends on his income. Okay. But I wouldn't say more f- more than four or five thousand dirhams. Okay. Up to a certain time. The law now says up till the person remarries, but I think that's going to be revised. Which leads me on to a question here saying, I want to know how after how long from a divorce as an expat do you have to wait until you get married again? Uh, as an expat, is not really the question. Is as a non-Muslim. So as a non-Muslim, you can get married uh, right away. Although technically, any court decisions can be appealed within one month. Uh, but as a as a Muslim, then it's three months. Three months after what we call the idap period. It's a waiting period. Okay. Hope that helps. Um, no name on this one four zero zero one. If you've got any questions, we are. It wasn't planned this way. It wasn't planned to be a divorce special. <laughs> it's just it's just evolved. Um, saying what is the law for Christian wife, Muslim husband divorcing with two sons? So, Christian wife, Muslim husband divorcing with two sons. First thing that screams to me is custody. So, if the the boys are under five, mum has automatic custody. As soon as they hit five years old, if she's not converted, they go to the dad. Okay. That's it. Simply because... What, sorry, just ask a really crude question. What if he doesn't want them? What if, what, oh, what, if he doesn't want them, then they stay with mum. But if he does want them, he can apply for custody and simply say she's not going to be able to teach them religious principles. And it's not just because he's Muslim. It would be the same in any other religion. Okay. Uh, so you have a, a massive wave of women uh, converting 
around their child's fourth or fifth birthday. But also with the new changes with the law, you have a lot of non-Muslim women converting to Islam to be able to make sure that they have the old law apply to their case. And in terms of where you go for an interfaith divorce, is there a specific divorce court you need to go to? Same court. Same court. Same court. But then if one of the parties is Muslim, you'll go to the Muslim court. Just to come back to the finance side, a message here saying, what if your husband doesn't have a salary, owns a business, but doesn't withdraw a salary? How do you start to calculate assets and what you'd be entitled to? So uh, if you have the right lawyer, the lawyer will make searches Right, so there will be RTA searches to see if he owns any any cars. If he's if he's been advised properly, all the cars will be in his company name. Mm-hmm. But they'll check the company, they'll check uh, the company details, company accounts if the company is only in his name, uh, and they'll check his lifestyle. So they'll look at his bank account and credit card, and from that we can deduct. See what amount. you're having dinner. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're hanging out in DIFC, and you can't you can't have spent four hundred dirhams for one person eating out. Mm-hmm. Got you. Those kind of research detective work going on um no name on this one saying can a father take take kids to a child psychologist without the mother's consent i've had that in a previous case of mine where the father had to take the children uh into a child psychologist simply because he needed to make an emergency application for custody so when the welfare of the child is at risk um sometimes and and the mum is the perpetrator you just don't have a choice Mm -hmm. but generally uh, as a go, as a co-parenting rule, you want both parents involved uh, in any therapy your child goes through. Um, I feel like we've kind of touched on this, but I'd love to revisit it. Saying, do home country laws apply in divorce here? Mm-hmm. Wait to give you a lawyer's answer: yes and no. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> to be fair, the psychologist answer that we have on a Tuesday afternoon is: it depends. It depends. <laughs> there you go. So um, you are able. To ask for, you were able, sorry, to ask for the law of nationality of your husband at the time of marriage or the law of the place of where you got married. So let's say you got married in Seychelles, you could have asked for Seychelles. Let's let's go back to me me and my husband's fictional divorce. So you and your husband, let's say you got married. We got married in Dubai, actually. Oh, you got married in Dubai, then it doesn't make any difference. It'll be Dubai law. Okay. But if you got married married in in England, England, um, then uh, you, you could technically ask for English law to be translated. And then for it to be brought over. But if it goes against any UAE law principles, mm-hmm. public law principles, what it won't be applied. in that situation? Um, a wife having to pay maintenance to her husband, for Got example. You. And how do you decide then which what's going to be more beneficial, home law or... You have or... to look at the whole picture. You see, I spoke to a woman this morning when I was coming back from the airport who said, right, um, I, 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 and I don't have any assets, I don't have any children... My husband is the one that has all the assets. Uh, where do I go? And even if she had children, straight away I'll say England because she wouldn't get, uh, she'll get low maintenance here even if they've been married for a, a long time and she would then get a share of the assets. Okay. So if there are assets that need to be divided, look at your home country because Dubai is not going to give you a share of the assets. Okay, let's go to this message here saying, where do I stand for payments to my wife who walked out on me and my son? He's seven. She's since left the country. So payments to... His wife, she's no longer in the UAE. The boy is with him. Payment for what then? For, for spousal maintenance? It must be. Um, well, it'll be difficult for her to make an application for spousal maintenance. Let's say she's moved to England. I'm using England simply because that's, that, that's where I was trained. But let's say she's moved to England. He's here with the child. Uh, from here, she could apply 
at the court and say, I need spousal maintenance. But the problem is she's not resident here, so it'll be difficult. It'll be, it'll be very difficult. She can open a case, though, in the English court and say, I've, I want a divorce in the English court. My husband is based in Dubai, but I still want a divorce. They'll take up the divorce if she's living in England. Um, but her level of maintenance will be limited simply because he's the one that has the child. So she will get some sort of spousal maintenance if he's the main breadwinner and she's not. Um, but in terms of, of, of child maintenance, no. Really hope that helps. If you need any more clarification on that situation, get in touch. Madeline Mendy is in the studio with us today. Family lawyer extraordinaire, probably the busiest woman in Dubai right now. We've stolen her away from her office to answer your questions and mine. Live in studio, fresh from a holiday on an absolute fire today. Madeleine Mendes, the head of family law at the Bin Seven Advocates and Legal Consultants. And today we, well, it has turned into a, a bit of a divorce special and I'm, I'm happy we're able to help as many people because I feel like there's a lot of information and misinformation out there. So if you do need advice, get in touch, 4001. You've got the app, you've got the WhatsApp. This message came in earlier, Madeleine, saying, can an amicable divorce agreement be reviewed yearly? The only part of an agreement that can be reviewed yearly is um, the child maintenance and the child custody. But a spousal maintenance wouldn't. It'll be a set amount and that's it. What happens if circumstances do change? We had a message there saying what happens if a husband loses his job, for example? What's in place? Then what they have to do, they have to be proactive and go to court and say, right, I've lost my job, my income has changed, here's my new income, please revise the amount of maintenance. And the court will do that. The only problem is when you just bury your head in the sand Mm -hmm. and the debt accumulates. So you have to be proactive. Okay. Again, being above board. Yes. Okay, a message here saying, anonymous again, as I said, absolutely fine. I'm from South Africa, but Muslim. Where do we get divorced? UAE or South Africa? Is he responsible for maintenance for me, not only kids, if I'm only married by Sharia law, not court married? How long then could I stay in Dubai? Right. If it's only a Sharia marriage, as in just a nikah, um, then I don't think she gets she can get divorced in South Africa because South Africa does not recognize knickers. So that would only leave the UAE. Um, she can get divorced in the UAE. She would get some maintenance for her, but only for three months. Okay. And then after that, uh, she will get what we call a custodian allowance, a small salary for her to look after the children, but it wouldn't be more than a 1,000 or 2,000 dirhams a month. And she will still get spousal main, um, child Don't maintenance. Mention. And her rent paid normally. Okay, really hope that helps. I've just been sent a photo saying I'm smelling fraud, and it's a screen, it's a screenshot of a scam claiming to be the central bank of UAE, and central is spelled incorrectly. So yes, <laughs> I'd say so. I would say so. Um, no name on this message, Madeline, saying um, I'm unhappy in my marriage, seeking divorce. We've grown apart. I have a young child and want to know if I seek divorce, could I lose custody of my child and can I get any spousal financial support? FYI, I'm Indian, he's British and we got married in the UAE. Nationality is not a big deal. It's mainly the religion. Uh, As I said earlier, if you are of uh, different religion, at five years old, the father can claim custody of of the child if he he has a female blood relative also to look after the child. Um, she can get divorced if they have assets in the if they have assets and they're only in the husband's name because he's British. I would say to go and get divorced in the English court. Uh, people don't understand that if one of the parties is British, you can still go and get divorced in England based on that person's domicile. 
Hope that helps. If you need anything else, let me know. Um, this comes back to the, your point there saying, based on Sharia law, does it matter financially if the woman asks for divorce or her husband gives her the divorce or she divorces him? It does. When a woman asks for a divorce in the Sharia, it's called a khula, K-H-U-L-A, and uh, normally she forfeits any financial um, support from the husband when she does that unless she can prove that the reason why she asked for a divorce is because of his fault. So it could be domestic violence, could be the fact that he's not supporting her financially. Uh, and there's a list that can be found in the personal status law. But generally, if you apply for a hula, you ask, as a female, you ask for the divorce, then you, you forfeit your rights. Okay, really hope that helps. Um, a bit of a sidestep, we are still talking divorce, but there's an, an extra element in this message that uh, came in on social media earlier saying my husband accessed my WhatsApp and Instagram without my permission, taking screenshots of conversations I had and has produced it as evidence in my home country in divorce proceedings. He is aware of privacy breach implications here, so has not used it in the UAE. Or both residents in the UAE. Am I, am, I, am I in a position to report to authorities for breach of privacy and misusing my personal account without my permission? Can I take action against him? And if yes... What consequences will he face? So in these questions, I always like to put myself as the husband's lawyer, right? Um, she can take, the, the wife can take action and, and can go to the court. Let's say they, they live in this area and they go to Al-Basha police station to say husband's breach privacy laws. Um, and generally, if he's found guilty, 250,000 dirham fine Ooh. and deportation. Ooh. But But you need to prove it. The crime, has the crime taken place in the UAE? He could say, well... It's, 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 it's used in a foreign jurisdiction. That's number one, if I was the husband's lawyer. But who is to say the husband took those screenshots? Mm-hmm. could be anyone. It's very difficult. Those cases are very difficult to prove. So in this situation, if you... Just sorry, I'm just trying. <laughs> and the foreign, court, the foreign court will use that information. The English court will use that information. So if he's not able... She's not able to prove that he took the screenshots, but he does use them as evidence. It, that doesn't really matter. It's about who, who yeah. basically invaded her privacy yes and and he hasn't used them in the uae so the crime is not taking place in the uae okay just to go back to the message we had earlier um which was just saying um talking about nationality and you said actually to make that much odd they're both hindu just just got a follow-up right. message. does that make any difference at all well you have uh i'm assuming hindu from india uh depending on the nationality there uh but you have uh, a set of laws just for expat Indians that are living in the UAE. They've been put through the court. But generally, it's the same system. It's about recognition. Can we help out with a, with a, with a new baby? Would that be okay? Yes. Yeah. Of we'll course. have a little break from divorce, but then we'll come back to it because we've got lots of messages. <laughs> Anonymous saying, my husband and I are not married and we have a daughter. All right. We're arranging her birth certificate and need to apply for the court document. I have my work visa and Emirates ID, but my partner doesn't have a visa right now due to issues with a former employer. Right. I understand we can do it with his certified copy of passport and a declaration for both of us as parents. But do I need to use a PRO? Can we do it ourselves? We're trying to save costs. He also doesn't have an Emirates ID right now as it expired. First of all, Congratulations on your baby. Yes. Right. So, yeah, I can imagine the mists of exhaustion and hormones. And, and the stress. Is that to have... So, two questions here. Is that to get the birth certificate or is that to, to get the passport? Applying, arranging her birth certificate. So, they don't have his Emirates ID, but I'm assuming they'll have a previous Emirates ID. This sounds... Uh, what, what I would do is if I, if I was them, no need to get a lawyer. I know I'm talking myself out of money here, <laughs> but no need to get a lawyer. 
get a photocopy of the MSID. The front part is mainly what the court needs. Um, and then, because that's the MSID number that will be reconducted later, use that, go to the go to the typing center, Aladi Typing Center, the one in uh, DIP is very good. Uh, go there, make an application. I think the fee is about 1,300, 1,400 dirhams uh, and, and apply as long as you have a photocopy of the of the Emirates ID, you'll be fine. Okay. Good luck and all the very best. But yeah, I know paperwork when you're in the midst yes. of the new baby bubble, not fun. Uh, keep us posted though, because I think that's a really, it's an interesting one. I know it's something that a lot of couples are yes. investigating right now. So all the very best. A follow-up message um, saying, if a wife does kulu, did I say that correctly? Kula. 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 Sorry to all of our Arabic speakers, I can only apologise. And she has kids. Does yeah. the father provide zero support to her and the kids or only supports the kids financially? A father always has to support his kids, no matter what. And he also has to provide rent, uh, if they're Muslim, for the guard, for the custodian of the child. So if she looks after the children, he'll have to pay her rent. But he doesn't have to pay her any any maintenance. Okay. Does that help? I hope that helps. I think we've got time for one question. Let's go to this one. Uh, no name saying, for a mutual divorce agreement, is it mandatory to mention who has custody? My daughter's dad said he doesn't want to mention anything about it. Um, and I don't know why he wants to do it this way. All financial responsibility is with him. And I want to make sure it's not a trick. Agreement just says that we can both see the kid freely. If nothing regarding custody is mentioned in the divorce agreement, is there a rule by default in the UAE? I know we're on the radio so there is. So they couldn't see my face, but now you must mention. There are things you cannot gamble when you do a settlement agreement by yourself without lawyers. Mm -hmm. And that's custody, the level of maintenance and, uh, and guardianship. You must write who that child is supposed to be with, especially if you're of different religion. Because uh, if, if it's a Muslim couple, the fallback position will be at 13 or 11, depending on the sex of the child. They'll go, the custody can go to the father. So it's important that you write down. My last question to you, um, and we're not going to role play anymore. <laughs> Actually, no, you know what? We will. We will. We're going to role play. Go on. Um, then. So we're, I wish we were best friends. So we're best friends. So we're going out for a cup of coffee. And I say, I'm desperately unhappy right. and I want a divorce. What would you advise me in terms of getting those ducks in a row so you are as financially and logistically protected as possible? I know you're going to say it depends on religion. Mm, no. Not so much? Not on this one. Okay, tell me, what, what should everyone listening today... The first thing I'll tell you, uh, if you're my best friend, is go to therapy. That's the first, genuinely, that's the first thing uh, I would tell you. And I know I'm talking myself out of money again, but that, that would be the first thing. But then I would say, right, whilst you go to therapy, this is what you need to do. Check out your finances, right? Make sure that any assets that have been purchased during the course of the marriage, you know where they are. Uh, in whose name they are, and ideally you will have a screenshot uh, of their value. Uh, if 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 there have been properties that have been bought in the UAE that are not in your name, work on that. Divorce is a journey, and sometimes you have to strategize six months to a year in advance before you get there. And that by that I mean. If a property is in one name, transfer that property in joint names. If an account is in one name, make sure you have an oversight. Make sure you get financial visibility. That's the most important. When it comes to the children, I think both parents are aware of their capacity to care for their children ultimately. Um, so even if there's an ego fight at the beginning, 
the 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 proof is in the pudding in terms of looking after the children but finances definitely get financial visibility Madeleine Mundy, thank you so, so much. Thank you. I know you've got a very busy few weeks ahead, but if anyone does want to contact you, if we weren't able to get to their question today or they would you know, prefer to speak to you in confidence, what's the best way of getting in touch with they you? They can contact me on my Instagram page, which is Madeleine Mendy Legal, uh, or email me at the office. Tell you what, if you send me, I'm, I've just had a message, can you please share the lawyer contact you? If you send me the word law, I will send you Madeline's Instagram so you can check out there. But it's also just a great resource as well. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank See, you for having me again. I know, my pleasure. We'll have you back very soon and we'll have a <laughs> cup of tea. And in, in the meantime, I hope, Madeline Mendy, if you want her details, send me the word law. I'd be very happy to share her details. Meeting not one but two doctors now, the team behind an incredible surgery that saved a boy's life and his sight after he travelled from Morocco to here in the UAE in search of expert care. Dr Said is in the studio joining us from Medcare Hospital Sharjah and his colleague Dr Jana Karam, uh, both um, when it comes to all things skull surgery, uh, otolaryngology is the is the phrase I need to get practiced before the end of the hour. Um, and uh, doctor is joining us from India. How are you, Dr. Janakaram? Very fine, very fine. Thank you very much. And it's a pleasure to be uh, a part of your program. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, especially given the time difference and, and just how busy you are. Um, I want to speak to both of you about what happened with young Yusuf. So I'd, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about, well, first of all, maybe Dr. Said, you can tell us a little bit about what your job involves. Tell us a little bit about what, what body part you specialize in and uh, and. Well, maybe not on two doctorly terms, so we understand what's going on. Uh, thank you to, so much, Helen, for inviting us, uh, me and my boss, Dr. Jenna Kiram. Uh, we are a, a skull-based team in Medcare Hospital in Sharjah, and our plan is to make like uh, a very high level of skull-based surgery um, uh, part uh, in uh, in uh, Medcare, like to make it uh, one of the best uh, uh, places for dealing with complicated cases, uh, like in the anterior and lateral skull-based surgery. In general, it's starting from the tumors of the nose, like pituitary, CSF leak, even the lateral skull base. So we are trying the first time to, in the private sector, to make this uh, uh, this subspecialty as complete, uh, like unit or or or. Uh, like a complete section for skull-based cases. Can you tell us, Dr. Janakaram, when did you first hear about 14-year-old Yusuf Misbahi um, and what did you know about the case initially? Yeah, so uh, thank you very much again uh, and um, and uh, thanks for my, uh, to my colleague, Professor Syed, a very close friend of mine. We formed uh, together a team called the Skull-Based Team uh, Admit Kashaja. Now, this patient, Mr. Yusuf, um, Master Yusuf, 14 years, who came to us, and uh, actually he had uh, WhatsApped me his details uh, from Morocco. And uh, I saw that the tumor was very big and uh, it was involving the, uh, and the patient had nasal obstruction. That means he was not able to breathe and also he had bleeding from the nose. Gosh. And uh, he just uh, gave me a WhatsApp message and asked me, whether I can operate on this because he had gone to several countries and they had refused surgery for him. That's how I get, came to know uh, firsthand what his problem was. Can you tell us a little bit about what the official diagnosis was and just how rare 
Yusuf's case was? Yeah, so this, this patient, uh, actually Yusuf, uh, a football player, uh, a young boy who had a very, very large tumor in the nose and, uh, as I told you, refused uh, by many, many surgeons in many countries, European countries, uh, gave me a message that he had to get it operated because it was uh, growing and his eye was completely blind in the left side. Wow. Right side, the uh, eye was, uh, the vision was diminishing and he had a big tumor causing uh, bleeding from the nose and uh, completely the nose was blocked. So they wanted to get it operated and uh, so we um, decided to do it in Metcalf Sharjah and uh, yeah, myself and Professor Syed uh, operated together on this case and uh, inshallah we could remove it completely. We're going to talk about what that surgery involved but before that Dr. Syed I wondered if you could tell us about what do we know about what caused this tumour and we should be clear it wasn't, it wasn't a cancerous tumour is that right? No it's not a cancer it's like benign tumour but one of the like very difficult cases in like in the, in the, in the aspect of uh, benign tumour it's called juvenile angiofibroma and it's very you can say uh, bleeding bleeding case and if we didn't uh, control the bleeding in the beginning of the surgery, it will be very, very difficult to do it. So basically before starting the surgery, we should close the arteries, uh, which is feeding the, the tumor, and then we can remove the tumor. Uh, it's, it's a very rare case. And honestly, there is no specific uh, r- like cause for that. You call it de novo. Uh, like, and it's coming on uh, like the ages maybe from 10 to 14, the adult uh, uh, male, uh, male patients only. So how big was this tumor? What size? It's about more than 1 kg. Like it's um, if you if you want to to measure it it's uh, taking more than the half of 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 the of the head of the patient. So Gosh. it's very 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 big. We're going to be finding out more about that surgery next and also medical tourism in general. We know what are some of the risks in terms of traveling to another country for a surgery such as this. And what did that recovery entail? Speaking to not one, but two specialists from Medcare Hospital Sharjah now, Dr. Saeed in studio and Dr. Yana Karam, um, speaking to us from India. As we discuss 14-year-old Yusuf, he presented after travelling from Morocco with an enormous tumour, a, a rare tumour, not cancerous, juvenile, in fact, Dr. Saeed, I'm going to let you say it, juvenile naso what? Angiofibroma. Thank you very much. That's why you, that's why you have a doctor in front of your name. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about the surgery. How many hours are we talking, Said? Uh, surgery takes about uh, six hours, and it's, uh, as uh, we discussed before, it's like a team. We should work together. Uh, two surgery, so two surgeons at least. Maybe the neurosurgeon will be also stand by. Uh, navigation should be available. All uh, the, the uh, instruments, inclu- including the shaver, the brider, uh, cobulation. So everything th- should be available in this kind of co- complicated cases. Dr. Janet Kevin, can I ask you a little bit about some of the challenges that you face as, as doctors, as surgeons, when you've got someone traveling internationally? So medical tourism, um, what are some of the potential issues that might arise? Uh, see, I have been traveling for the past 20 years. I have been operating in around 25 countries around the globe. And uh, my job was to uh, actually demonstrate life surgeries and to teach uh, various neurosurgeons and EMT surgeons. So 
uh, I'm not new to operating outside my arena. Mm-hmm. So point number one. Point number two is medical tourism is the order of the day. Now uh, people travel all over the world to get the best treatment. And uh, since we have offered the best treatment uh, for uh, this kit, naturally they would uh, prefer to come to the place where we we hit the, the patient, we get the best treatment. So medical tourism is going to be the, the order of the day in future. Uh, with regards to the challenges, yes, uh, there were several challenges. One is how to, uh, first of all, whether to remove the tumor completely or to leave it on the artery which supplies the brain. And second is uh, whether to do a two-stage surgery. That is, uh, first do a little bit of the surgery and then go for the second stage. Mm-hmm. And third is uh, how do we control bleeding? Because it's a bleeding tumor and so uh, the patient will bleed to death. So we wanted to make it very safe and uh, safe for the child as well as for the whole team. And so we uh, managed it, um, uh, you know, without much blood loss. And of course, uh, with the equipment uh, which uh, we have got in Medicare, we could, uh, you know, remove the tumor completely. In a single stage, we could remove the tumor. Can I ask, um, Dr. Said, what does Yusuf need to know for the rest of his life? Is there any risk in this coming back? Does he need to be careful in certain behaviors, you know, exercise you know he, as we said he's a keen footballer he couldn't join us today and sadly doesn't speak any english unfortunately so we we couldn't have him on the show but for w- when you think about his life moving forward which you know you saved his sight you saved his life what, what does yusuf need to know uh like yusuf came back to to the normal life there is no risk there is no problem after doing the surgery after removing the tumor completely he will go back completely to the to the normal life wow. there is no risk for anything and if the tumor is surely compl- uh, removed completely like in our case so he'll come back to the normal 100% you cannot imagine the the pleasure of of uh, of the mother when we told her that like the tumor was completely she hugged directly dr janahiram because he started before he came mm-hmm. up, he it was very very like uh, outstanding uh, moment. moment yes uh, dr janahiram what does that mean to you to be able to you know look into a mother's eyes and think you know, we've we've saved your teenage son. That's that's an incredible, incredible privilege. I'm sure. Means a lot, uh, actually, to save a child uh, from such a tumor, and uh, I think giving back the child in uh, without any complications uh, and uh, going back to normalcy after surgery is is something which is uh, very very uh, laudable. And I'm sure that uh, the the family will be very happy with the treatment which we have given. Well, thank you both. Really appreciate it. And a, a real honour, to be honest, to be able to meet people who have, you know, take life in their hands every single day. And what, really, a really happy ending to this story here. 14-year-old Yusuf presenting with a remarkably rare tumour, travelling from Morocco after numerous mixed diagnosis and people refusing to take on this case. So to both of you, thank you so much um, for sharing that story. Really appreciate it. Dr. Yan Kameen, I'm going to let you get back to your time in India and safe travels back to the UAE. And Dr. Said, thank you for joining us in studio. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. September marks Blood Cancer Awareness Month and joining us now we have both a doctor and a patient who I should say is in great health. Uh, doctor Shabiha is a consultant haematologist at Haim Cares who set up the first bone marrow transplant centre here in Dubai. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're incredibly busy doctor and I think it's really important to hear from you about the medical side, what we need to know on that front, but also to hear the human side as we're going to be hearing from Radha and Farley later. Can I ask you about... 
how prevalent blood cancer is. How common is it? So thank you, Helen, for having me today. Very it's welcome. been a pleasure. I think we've meeting after a couple of years. I know. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's been great to, to be back. And I'm, I'm happy that I'm back here talking about blood cancer, which is a topic that I'm very passionate about. And I do want to make a lot of awareness, especially in, in our society, which is, I mean, it's, it's just considered still as a taboo and not much talked about. Why do you think that is? Um, I think any cancer is still sort of taken as a taboo. Not many people come out and talk about it. Not many people um, present themselves as warriors, which I think is extremely courageous, actually. And I think they're very, very brave to have had this disease and to fight it and to be tackling with this on a daily basis. And it is a battle. It's a battle for not just for the patient, but I must say it's a battle for the family and the, and the supportive system as well. I couldn't agree more. I, I spoke to my dad quite honestly and openly for the first time a couple of years ago about what he'd been through with cancer and he's had cancer three times now which just seems mm. a bit greedy um, but he's in great health but that's, that. that's what he said he said exactly that you know he said you've got to be pretty selfish to think about just yourself during this and you you know it's, it's the impact it has on your family and when I look at what he went through you know his attitude was amazing and I'd have him on the phone going H everything's fine I've got a plan I'm doing this I'm doing that and I have my mum on the phone in pieces and I knew that the truth was somewhere in between but you know it was a real testament to us as a family kind of coming together but him really leading that fight with his attitude it was it was really impressive to see and you're right it's, it affects friends families schools it's um it's horrendous and you're absolutely right when people come forward and talk about their experiences it can be so inspiring and we've got one such woman in the studio right now um and these awareness months are crucial because, well, especially when we think it's something like blood cancer, we hear an awful lot, as we rightly should, about breast cancer. Um, I feel like, you know, men's health, um, testicular cancer is certainly coming to the fore now. Um, but when we think about blood cancer, we actually don't talk about it. We perhaps don't even know some of the words that might be associated with it. So how common is it? How prevalent is I blood agree. cancer? Yeah, so blood cancer is kind of the world's, let's say, fifth common cause of, of death. And, and when we talk about blood cancer, it's, it's not uh, an umbrella term. There are different types of blood cancers as well. And when we talk about particular types, you know, myeloma, multiple myeloma is one of the cancers which actually is the second most common cancer of blood, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, and those are the terms when you throw in the wildest, nobody would have actually heard about them. Mm -hmm. And when you actually talk about, you know, people on the street, we did a study and then Blood Academy did a study as well uh, last year. And they actually went around and backhunched sort of people and found out, you know, have you heard of blood cancer? You know, not many people had heard of and, and, you know, prostate cancer, breast cancer gets talked about a lot more. And you're absolutely right. People don't know about blood cancer. And if people do, you know, normally the, the impression is, oh, they've been hit against a wall and, and that's the dead end. Mm -hmm. And you're not much actually has been talked about the current treatments and how the prognosis is and how people actually do after the treatment. Mm -hmm. So it is it is common. And I think the awareness months and awareness days are so crucial in, in not just raising the awareness about the name, but also the prognosis and survival of these these fighters as well. Are there any certain groups or demographics that blood cancers affect in particular, doctor? So blood cancer is quite common everywhere, but then there are certain groups where we see sort of more predominance, particularly in the Afro-Caribbean population, multiple myeloma is known to be more common. Um, the rest of the sort of lymphomas are a bigger group of, of blood cancers. They could be Hodgkin's lymphoma, and that is usually prevalent in a lot of younger age, between 20s and 30s. And then it has a bimodal peak. What we call bimodal is the first peak is in the 20s and 30s. The second peak is, is after 60s. 
So that's Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is, is prevalent sort of above the age of 30, different age group, different types. And mm-hmm. if you actually look at the classification, World Health Organization actually talks about different classification of non-Hodgkin's. So it's, a, it's a huge list. And, you know, anything and everything can be affected. Could be in the eye, could be in the leg, could be in the bone, could be in the spleen, the liver, lymph nodes. So it's a very wider and very broader term. Then you talk about the acute leukemias, and mm. we talk about acute leukemias particularly commoner in the childhood. Why is that? And I, I, I tragically have known a couple of children to have battled leukemia, um, and have sadly, you know, a boy I went to school with, um, just eight years old, passed away. It was the first funeral I'd ever been to, and you know, yeah. for it, when, I, when we think about it affecting schools and families. That can, I think that's quite often the first brush of mortality that children might have. Why does leukemia affect children in particular? So there are multiple risk factors to that, Helen. And, you know, as the science is growing, we are knowing more and more about the genetics, more and more about the molecular work. And, you know, more diagnostic sort of implications are coming in, more scientifically advanced tests are there to diagnose these conditions. I mean, risk factors in terms of maternal age, sometimes, you know, the environmental factors can affect you know, smoking and and all the other hazardous things that we say no to are particularly prevalent. Unfortunately, they do impact. We are going to be talking about not just the risk factors, but also the red flags you need to be aware of when it comes to blood cancers. Yes, you might be looking for a lump with other kinds of breast cancers. And we talked about their prostate, testicular, um, you know, melanoma. You're looking for you know changes in your skin, but what about blood cancers? What are some of the signs and symptoms that you need to be tuned into? We're also speaking. They're rather joining us next. We are marking Blood Cancer Awareness Month, rightfully raising some knowledge, education around types of blood cancers, um, signs and symptoms. We're going to be talking next. I'm going to be joined by Warrior, rather, in the studio, joining us live from Hankers, Dr. Shabiha K. Rana. Can you tell us about some of those signs and symptoms? As I said earlier, we know that early prevention is absolutely crucial when it comes to treatment and successfully beating many types of cancer. And that, when we're thinking about, you know, October, it's talking about how to self-examine breasts. We're talking about looking for changes in moles. But with, with blood cancers, what's come into clinic where someone's going, I'm putting the pieces together and I think this is what it is? Yeah, so good question. And I'm, I'm very impressed, Helen, by um, when you talk about sort of prostate cancer and the skin changes in melanoma and, and lumps in the breast cancer. I think the blood cancer remains a diagnosis where anything and everything is possible to ah, my eye. So complicated. It is. It is complicated. But I think the general symptoms, if we roughly talk about I think it's important to mention the blood cancers are treated by the, the, us doctors called hematologists. And we, we have to classify there are three main types of blood cancers. So the first one is lymphoma. The other one is leukemia. And then the third one is multiple myeloma. Now, how they present is a very variable sort of presentation. But generally, they usually present with signs and symptoms of fatigue and tiredness, sometimes with bruising sometimes with lumps coming up in, in the neck or under the arms or in the areas where, where you can feel, and patients who actually have back pain or bone pain. Some patients actually have quite significant confusion, and that's a sign that they have high calcium and they're getting confused and can actually become constipated. Oh, that's so, yeah, so complicated for getting a diagnosis. Yeah, then. so, I mean, patients present with bruising, they, pre- they can present with bleeding, they can present with a lump. I mean, I have had patients who presented with lump in the breast thinking that this was breast cancer, but actually turns out to be a lymphoma. 
patients with back pain uh, eventually having a fracture in the back could have multiple myeloma. Patients with easy bleeding and bruising and, and no immune system or repeated infections could actually have acute leukemia. Now, I wanted to ask you about treatment. Can, mm. you, can you speak to that? And it's obviously going to very much depend on the stage, on the type, but what is available for blood cancer patients? So I think if we talk about the treatment, the paradigm has shifted so much in the last 10 to 12 years and we have a huge sort of artillery of, of medication. I wouldn't say just chemotherapy. That actually is kind of becoming a, a, a thing of the past. Where we are in this current day and age in the 21st century, we're talking more about sort of molecular drugs or targeted therapy. We're talking about immunotherapy. Mm. We're talking about sort of much more advanced treatment brought on earlier in the lines of therapy rather than actually batting them through and, and leaving them for later. So the strategy really is a combination of, of immunotherapy or targeted therapy with mix of chemotherapy drugs here and there. Of course, as you said, it depends on the stage and the type of, of blood cancer that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Lymphomas would have a different sort of a regimen and protocols compared to myeloma and leukemias. Let's speak to Radha now. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio. And as I said, glowing with health. But that wasn't the case a couple of years ago, Radha. Tell us a little bit about your your discovery, your diagnosis of blood cancer and what type you had. Thank you, Helen, for having me here. Uh, thank you, Dr. Rana. Um, I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in July of 2021. And like doctor just mentioned, I started with a back pain and just took it for, you know, any normal thing. Could be wrong shots in golf or doing too much of yoga, carrying my grandson the wrong way. So, But we, I did go to the doctors, you know, the regular chiropractors and uh, orthopedics and all those things. Everything seemed okay, but just could not pinpoint why the pain was. And then ultimately, I think I carried on like this for almost four or five months. And then one day it was really bad and then went to a spine specialist. He did an MRI and he told me I have bone metastasis. First time in my life I've ever heard that word. I, it's the first time I'm hearing it. What is, what is it, Roger? <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, lesions it's, in, yeah. in, 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 in the bone. And uh, I had a few on my uh, my spinal uh, bone. And it was, it wasn't as, the, the results showed much more stronger than how much pain I was feeling. There was pain, but not as much. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, um, you know, uh, we just knew that, it has got something to do with the cancer. So the term came into our pic the, the picture. And then we decided we'll go to New York, to US, to get it properly diagnosed. And I started the treatment there. And then I came back to Dr. Rana. And how were you feeling during this time in terms of your day-to-day -day health? Because, you know, have a bit of back pain is one thing. But to then understand it's a cancer, that must have played into a mental health side as well. It, it did. It did. It did affect all of us the whole family. Um, but it was, I think we took it the right way, said that it is there and we just need to know what to do with it. Pragmatic. Yeah. You and know, positive. And just very positive. We have to be positive. There's no other way to go about it. So you came back and joined Dr. Rani and you had a bone marrow transplant. So can you tell us a little bit about that procedure from your point of view rather and, and I would love to hear from doctor next about how yeah. and why that works. The doctor doctor did explain, doctor and the nurses, everybody explained to me in detail what the procedure was. Just that hearing about it was overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I don't think I was scared about uh, radiation or chemotherapy as much. I had already done that and it was fine. No, no big deal. I mean, I, I was okay with it. 
But the thought that I have to go through a stem cell transplant, that was not an easy thing to do. But then um, it was hard. It was scary. <laughs> um, but I should say, you know, the... the, the the process was okay. You know, I was I I knew exactly what was happening, mm-hmm. and each each step was explained to me. So I was just I just went with the flow, and um, you got to put your trust in the people in the white coats. You sometimes. have to. <laughs> you really you do. have to because you don't know what else <laughs> to do. Like right? Not not a direct comparison, but you know, my birth plan was literally trust the doctor. Yeah. They know an awful lot more. Can you explain <laughs> why a bone marrow transplant can be effective in the treatment of blood cancer, doctor? So bone marrow transplant or what we call the stem cell transplant is actually a standard of care for a lot of blood cancers and some actually solid tumours and and some autoimmune problems as well. Um, It has been used for the last sort of 40, 50 years and and traditionally has been sort of taken as a step towards keeping the patient's disease under control. Mm -hmm. Um, There are two types of of bone marrow transplant. So one is from from the, the patient within. So the patient is the donor and the cells come back to the patient themselves. The other patient, the other type of transplant is actually from a donor transplant. And both of those have obviously their, their pros and cons. And, and the transplant that Radha had and what we established at the American Hospital um, is that uh, she had her own cells, which were given back to her. Now, the process is that once, once she was diagnosed with, with this condition, she had the initial treatment, what we call induction therapy. Mm-hmm. And that is deemed to sort of clean her blood and the bone marrow as much as possible, which, which it did. And she achieved a very good response. She was what we call, she was in, in, in complete remission. And after that, we collected her stem cells um, through the blood. And, and I think the common fear, first of all, is the bone marrow transplant is a surgery. I, I would like to say this out and loud and clear that it's actually not a surgery. It is actually some procedure that you donate your blood just as you donate blood in a, in a normal blood donation service. So the blood that we collect, it goes through a very clever machine, which stem cells are separated from. And then those stem cells are kept in the fridge or frozen when, at the time to give back, then the patient receives them. In between, the patient actually goes through one dose or, or different regimen of chemotherapy, and then the stem cells are given back. And they're given back exactly as blood transfusion. Mm-hmm. So they're not something that, you know, any bone marrow is cut through and the patient's open. There's no uh, knives and, you know, anything coming through to cut the patient open or whatever. So it is, it is a simple procedure to my side. But of course, from a patient's perspective, the whole idea of bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant is quite, quite threatening, isn't it? It was. But, but I think, you know, when, when you went through it and the process goes through... Then you're fine with it. Then, then you're, you're fine, fine yeah. But when we hear it and when we read about it, it is scary. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, th- I think the, the, the biggest challenge probably from the patient's perspective is that, you know, when they, the whole idea of staying in isolation for a certain number of days, mm-hmm. not seeing and meeting people is, is, is probably the most daunting. The psychological yeah. toll. Absolutely. Rather, you're working on a book right now. Yes, I am. Tell us a little bit about your mission with this and, uh, and who you're writing it for, I guess. I'm writing it for anybody who wants to take it up. It's just not, that's what I'm looking at. It's just not for people who are going through this particular cancer or any disease. It's for anybody. I am trying to propagate being positive, being, you know, being accepting of what is in front of you and just, you know, just be there. You know, things will work out. No. Things will work out. So, yeah. We've got Farley on the phone as well now. And now Farley is another patient 
of Dr. Runners. And I'm, I'm keen to, to hear from you, Folly, because you're working here um, in the UAE and you had a diagnosis um, a number of years ago. Tell us a little bit about what you were experiencing. It was abdominal pain, not back pain that you had that led you to a diagnosis of blood cancer. Would you mind telling us more? Uh, well, my, uh, thank you for having me there. And thank, you. thank you, Dr. Rana. Uh, mine was, uh, well, I had a double double whammy. Uh, in uh, November of 2020, I had a small gland on my uh, cheek uh, towards the neck. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another. A few biopsies later, they decided it was lymphoma. So I was treated for lymphoma practically... Uh, which went through almost uh, towards the end of 2021. And I achieved complete remission, mm-hmm. got back to working. Everything was fine. Three monthly checkups at the American hospital. And all was going fine until May this year, when I developed a very high fever, which was not going down. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't feeling good about it, so... I went and saw, uh, went to the emergency department at American Hospital, and they realized it's uh, AML, which is acute leukemia. So you, so totally, a totally different yeah. type of blood cancer, Folly. I'm so sorry you've had this diagnosis. This was in May last year of this year, rather. How are you feeling now, and what's your treatment plan oh, moving now forward? Now I'm fine. I've just gone through uh, two rounds of consolidation, uh, one round of induction chemo. Uh, two rounds of consolidation chemo and some targeted therapy. So we're smashing it at the moment. I'm fine, Good. but of course, it's the side effects of the chemo. Mm-hmm. Well, my dad had his chemo at American Hospital as well, and he made a lot of good friends there. I have to say, some great, some great team members. And you sound like you've got the fighting spirit. So, how are you feeling about the next few months? I'm feeling good right now, as long as it stays under remission, as Dr. Rana has promised. <laughs> no pressure, doctor. <laughs> and fingers crossed. Uh, but in my case, I can't do the bone marrow in Dubai because I have to do a donor bone marrow. Okay. So I'd have to do it in the US or Europe or the UK or something. A bit more complicated. Okay. Yeah. So I haven't really <clears throat> decided where I'm going to do it. Well, Fali, please keep us updated. I think you're absolutely right, surrounding yourself by the right experts. And I think rather hear a, a brilliant testimony to the, you know, the good attitude. And I'm so glad that you caught it when you did. It just goes to show you need to listen to your body. And um, I'm so pleased that you've got a good treatment plan ahead of you. Please keep us posted and stay well, won't you? Thank you very much. Thank you, Farley's pilot right here in the UAE. Rather, all the very best with the last few edits of the book. We keep us posted. Come and have a little chat when it's out. Thank and you. Dr. Rana, lastly, if anyone wants to find you, whether it is to run through some results, have a chat about any concerns, where can we find you in real life and online? Yeah, so I'm based at uh, Genesis Healthcare um, in Dubai Science Park. And um, uh, I'm available online. My email and my Instagram account is, is active as well. And I'm quite responsive on that. So the Instagram, Dr. underscore Shabia Rana underscore Hemong. So you can follow me there and uh, you can come and visit me at Genesis for any concerns that you have, either with symptoms or hopefully uh, nothing at all. But if you're concerned about anything. One last question has just come in on 4001 saying, asking about support groups. Is there, is there anywhere or any people you would recommend rather or Dr. Rana? Oh, there, there is this um, Al-Zalila uh, Foundation. It's they lovely. are amazing. And, you know, That's I'm available. It. 
And your others available too. Um, thank you so, so much. Um, a message here saying, thank you so much for the topic of blood cancer. I went through Hodgkin's lymphoma 16, 17 years ago while pregnant with my second child. It was quite unknown for most doctors, but unfortunately more and more cases of cancer in pregnancy. I was treated during pregnancy with chemo. I would agree with, with the speaker that positivity is so important. I'm in remission and as time passes, less risk of return. Thank okay. you so much for well sharing done, that. You. Well done. Dr. Ann, thank you so, so much. If you want doctor's details, you can just send me the word doctor. I'm very happy to introduce you to her on line 4001. It's back to school season and uh, does that mean more pesky lice and nits? Uh, judging by how fully booked our next guest salon is, I think it's safe to say yes. Palace Day is the founder and general manager of No More Lice. It's the UA's first lice and nits removal salon, just opened their fourth branch. So clearly something of a demand in this department. Um, I've got so many questions for you, Paolo. So please, please, please get in touch if anyone else wants to pick the brains of Paolo this afternoon. Tell us a little bit, and I, I'm forgive my ignorance because I know this is what you talk about day in day out what is the difference between lice and nits hi Yelen hi everyone (laughs) so uh, basically the difference is that uh, the lice is actually the animal itself and the nit is the egg okay are other people confused by this yes what (laughs) other myths and misconceptions do you think there are surrounding this area what what do people come into salon you go I don't know where you've got that information or I don't know why this continues to be perpetuated so um, the first thing that people is uh, telling me is always like uh, uh, you know we are clean so uh, the the absolutely the first false myth is related to personal hygiene uh, because, you know, lice actually likes clean hair. Ah. So they look for the scalp. They don't look for the length of the hair. So that's another mm, big question that they get. Uh, if they will cut the hair, if this make any sense, and it will help to get rid of lice. But actually, the animal, <laughs> sorry to say that, but uh, the animal is looking for the scalp and to suck the blood. That's how they survive. And that's how they uh, hitch the the knits. Oh my! Okay, right. So this is this is this is completely. <laughs> Do you feel itchy now? I am feeling a little <laughs> bit itchy. Yes, I can only imagine that you must be thinking about this all the time, Paolo. So that's interesting. So cutting hair doesn't make any difference at all. No. Um, is this is this proper busy season for you? Like, what role do schools and community and socialising have on the transmission of uh, lice and nits? Uh, so actually, the the season uh, there's not an, a particular season as uh, uh, they go through kids and kids uh, just play each other uh, twelve months a year. So uh, there is no particular season nowadays uh, with the back to school. So moms are more uh, aware that can happen, and so they they just want to check and in case uh, there is something they want to be treated. Of course, so you might be a bit more tuned in at this time of year. Yeah. Okay. What are some of the signs, the red flags that there might be an infestation in your child's lovely locks? <laughs> what can we be as parents be be looking out for? Uh, so the the first sign is that they are scratching their heads and uh, especially they can do it even when they sleep because, uh, you know, it's like a bite of a mosquito. So it doesn't make any difference if you're awake or if you sleep. So if the, the, the child will feel itchy, definitely they will scratch themselves. Can I ask a little bit about treatment? Because I think many of us and um, will have had that 
lovely smelling shampoo <laughs> on the edge of the bath growing up and then the knit comb coming out. Um, we've, we're going to be talking about some of your processes, but let's see if we can help out a listener here. No name has been in touch saying, we seem to constantly have knits with our 10-year-old. We've spent a fortune on treatments. We've been doing comb and conditioner every day for the past four days to avoid treatment as they seem to be immune to it. Um, we've put the treatment in, removed over 40 and lots of eggs. I'm doing the usual, changing pillows, hoovering lots, no soft toys, washing hats, cushion covers, but they keep coming back. There are obviously children in her class who keep passing them on, but I'm stuck what to do. Do we need the house treated? Please help. Okay, is this quite a common story that you hear? Yes, yes, uh, an everyday story because, uh, you know, when people is coming, even if they just want to be checked, so they are uh, frustrated about using the chemicals because, you know, nowadays it's everything into organic Mm -hmm. and we are organic 100%. So we don't use any product. I strongly believe that the chemicals are not useful because I tried uh, myself experiencing with my kids so um, the problem is that uh, the shampoos are very good to remove the lies, but they're not to remove the needs because they're basically made also with some small percentage of pesticide, which kill the animal. But the need is not an animal yet. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, it makes sense that it will come back mm-hmm. because the egg will hitch again another lies. So tell us a little bit about what happens in the chair at No More Lice. What, what are some <laughs> of the products you're using? Because my immediate thought is, Blast them with the chemicals. <laughs> what, no. what are some of the active ingredients that, you, that you're using? No, we just use a detangler um, because we just need to comb easier the, the hair with our special knee comb. Uh, so what we put, it's just an organic uh, detangler that we developed uh, with our formula. Uh, and it's paraben free and it's, you know, there is really no need in putting chemicals. So and then we give also instruction what to do later uh, because, um, you know, whenever you've been treated and then, of course, you go back home and the kids will lie down in the sofa playing with their iPads and then they go to bed. There might be some eggs or or lice in the pillow, in the mattress. So we I can say we can cover 360 degrees uh, the issue. So we treat, we sanitize and we prevent. So with the sanitizing, is that a sim- is that person, <coughs> is that between, can you, can you do homes? And, you know, if we yeah. Can- yeah, we do oh, at home. Wow. Okay, so, I'll send your details to this listener. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so can I ask then, if untreated, you know, what what can happen? What impact are we talking about health, mental health, you know, all, all of that? So this is the case when we have some severe infestation, uh, when kids are coming um, and they have really, really, really a lot. It happened to us many times. How, when you're saying a lot, and I'm afraid to ask this, Paula, how many, how many are we talking? Can be even thousands. And uh, it came a couple of times, uh, uh, two girls, that uh, the hair was even moving. It was really disgusting. Poor thing. So because, you know, some some of us will think, okay, it will go. But I actually say it will grow. This is something that I always say to moms. It will not go. It will grow. This isn't a problem that's going to solve itself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, goodness me. Where do you even start with a, with a case like that when you've got someone who is, you know, really 
in distress, how long would they be spending in the chair? Years. Ah, oh, no, no, in the chair, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I go. They're I moving into J3 like more. Greece. No. <laughs> <laughs> Summer. <laughs> no, no. No, it's just an hour treatment, actually. In a one hour, um, of course, these uh, severe cases uh, might take a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. But then after we, we have uh, uh, seven days after follow up. Uh, so we checked the, the situation and in 95% of the cases, I can say that uh, it's all gone. Oh, Paolo with us today from No More Lice. Sorry for any itching happening out there, but I think it's an important topic and one that we shy away from quite a lot. And I think a lot of people feel some shame and stigma around having it. It's incredibly common. And just to reiterate your point, it's absolutely no reflection on cleanliness or personal hygiene at all. They are, they're simply looking for a nice clean scalp to get their, to get their kicks from. Um, Alex saying, hi both. My daughter had very long, thick hair. We struggled with head lice all the way through primary school, despite every treatment. What solved it for us was as a teenager, she decided to straighten her hair and the side effect was that nits were obliterated. Is that something you've heard before? Is that effective or is this perhaps a a happy coincidence? Um, I think it's a happy coincidence because, uh, you know, the the nits and the lice, uh, they are very strong. Even, uh, you know, sometimes they ask me if going to swim, uh, some mothers have uh, swimmers at home, so they spend hours and hours every day. But even with the swimming, the still hanging around. Yeah. Can I ask you about prevention then? Um, we're talking about, you know, the solution about coming in should you have an infestation. But what should we be aware of in terms of avoiding it in the first place? Uh, so whatever is sharing, uh, it's dangerous. Like the, this fantastic unicorn uh, uh, elastic band, uh, it doesn't have to be shared. Uh, the comb and uh, I give all, often a tip but because to sterilize these things, uh, you need to boil or to freeze. So with the boiling, it's, um, it's ruining the things. It can melt. So I suggest uh, to freeze. So all night long, the elastic, the comb, uh, the band, uh, everything put in the in a plastic bag in the freezer and the day after it's everything very very clean and then of course no sharing of hats uh, of helmets you know all these kind of things selfies for example (laughs) 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 so a nice spike in business when the selfies came out Uh, this was born out of your own frustrations really um tell us a little bit about that you as you as a parent getting sick of endless treatments yeah yeah it happened to me five years ago so with my daughter and then my son as well so we came into this uh, crazy issue and for me it takes an year with the shampoo and all kind of shampoo my husband is a pilot and he used to bring me shampoos from all around the world it became like a mission (laughs) yes usually you know the husband brings a gift like nice gift (laughs) to me was shampoos a little chocolate (laughs) a little little French perfume or lice lice treatment lice treatment for for Paola lucky woman and this was not working at all so until a friend of mine from Italy she told me like why don't you go to a saloon specialized on that and it was surprising me because I didn't even know this kind of business exists so um, I just Google and nobody was here so I booked a flight I went to Italy in one hour problem solved I couldn't believe it so when I came back I told my husband I'm gonna open there's a gap in the market <laughs> so this is the UA's first 
Lice and Knit Removal Salon. And you now just opened your fourth branch. So we've got J3 Mall in Dubai. I've had a number of people going where. J3 Mall in Dubai, you're in Abu Dhabi, in Sharjah, and just opened in Alain. Alain, yes. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Master Shea saying, feeling itchy as I listen. Is it just me or do I have them? No, no I, everyone. No, don't worry. We were just saying the exact yeah. same thing. Don't <laughs> fear. Um, we've had also had a message saying, is one session enough and how much? Are you okay to speak to those details as well? No problem. So uh, one uh, session is um, 95% of the case is enough. Uh, with the included in the price, there is uh, the follow-up after seven days. And the, regarding the prices, we start from 395 And this includes the two sittings. Two so, sittings. Yeah. Really hope that helps. Any, any final words of wisdom that you've learned about lice or nits? Any strange facts that you've picked up along the years that you'd like to share with the group? Uh, I, uh, I've been told about so many natural homemade uh, treatments mm-hmm. with so many things, mayonnaise, uh, like uh, vinegar. You know what our parents used to do back in the past? So, yeah, uh, I have a lot of ingredients that... Uh, and of course they didn't work. They don't work. You've got to <laughs> go to the pros. I was thinking the kids with these messy things in their hair. <laughs> it was Vosine shampoo. That's what was always on the oh. side of our Vosine. Oh. Oh, I just got a very well. like, a very kind of very vivid flashback to that to that shampoo. Um, a lot of people asking for your details. So J3 Mall here in Dubai, if you want to send me the word... I don't know. Send me the word hair. Don't, don't send me the word lice, please. Send me the word hair. If you want details of this as something you're struggling with or you just want to bookmark it for the future so you've got it on speed dial, should that occur, I will send you the details. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I can let you go back to probably a very busy salon this afternoon. <laughs> School's kicking out in about 10 minutes time. So I'm sure they're all heading straight to you. Pal, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. As I said, if you want details of No More Life, send me the word hair. I'll send you their website so you can find out more. And as I said, just a good one to bookmark for the future. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.